Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, November 13th. I'm Aranza Loizaga, and these are today's headlines. All eyes on Capitol Hill today as public testimony begins in the impeachment inquiry of President Donald Trump. Ambassador William Taylor revealing that U.S. Ambassador to the EU Gordon Sondland told him, quote, everything depended on the Ukrainian president announcing investigations into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Outrage after a series of leaked emails reveal White House policy advisor Stephen Miller supported white nationalist groups in his time before serving in the White House. And former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton discussed pressure some are putting on her to run for the presidency once again in 2020, but will she do it? This and much more today on You News, recorded live from our newsroom in Miami. In Washington, history in the making. The first public testimonies in the impeachment showdown, kicking off Democrats' first two star witnesses, answering questions about President Trump, Ukraine, and whether Trump withheld military aid to the Ukrainians explicitly until that country announced political investigations into Joe Biden, a key Trump political rival. Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, and George Kent, a senior State Department official, testifying publicly about what they told lawmakers behind closed doors. And now let's go to Lorraine Cassidis, who's been following the hearings closely from Washington, D.C. Lorraine, what's the very latest? Aranza, it's been an interesting day. State Department official George Kent and also the American ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, both appearing in one hearing, both starting with their opening statements. And then the questions began 45 minutes for Democrats and 45 minutes for Republicans. Bill Taylor has reiterated the text exchange that he had with the EU ambassador Gordon Sondland, in which he told Gordon Sondland he thought it was, quote, crazy to withdraw holds uh, military assistance in exchange for a political favor. Let's listen to what he replied when the Democrats counsel, um, uh, Daniel Goldman, who is participating in the questioning, asked him what was his reaction when he realized that there was a direct connection between that political favor and the military aid. It's one thing to try to leverage a meeting in the White House. It's another thing, I thought, um, to leverage security assistance, security assistance to a country at war, um, dependent on both the security assistance and the demonstration of support. It was, it was much more alarming. The, the, the White House meeting was one thing, security assistance was much more alarming. Aranza, meanwhile, George Kent has testified that how worried he was when he realized the influence that Rudy Giuliani was having on the relations with Ukraine. And he was also worried about Giuliani's efforts to discredit the reputation of Marie Yovanovitch, which at the time was the American ambassador to Ukraine. Aranza, back to you. Lorraine, is there any indication that the president has been watching these hearings following or do we have any reactions from from the White House? 
the president has reacted. He has said that he has not been watching the hearings, which is something his press secretary said earlier before the hearings even began. Let's listen to what he said just moments ago. I'm, I'm too busy to watch it. It's a witch hunt. It's a hoax. I'm too busy to watch it. So uh, uh, I'm sure I'll get a report. There's nothing. There's, I have not been briefed, no. There's nothing there. I see they're using lawyers uh, that are television lawyers. They took some guys off television, you know. I'm not surprised to see it because Schiff can't do his own questions. And Aranza, even though the president says he's not watching the hearing, that he doesn't have time for that, he does have a group of his staffers at the White House watching the hearings and reacting in real time. That's all the information we have for now. I'll toss it back to you. Rain, thank you very much for this information. And on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, President Trump's actions are under fire. On Capitol Hill, Trump is welcoming Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to the White House today. The two leaders are likely to discuss matters including the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Turkey, the country's invasion of Syria, and claims by Kurdish leaders that Turkish troops are attacking them. And outrage is growing after revelations that White House policy advisor Stephen Miller regularly promoted emails from white nationalist groups while he was working as a senior aide for then-Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. The Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit organization that monitors hate groups, has published a trove of Miller's emails from 2015 and 2016. The emails were sent to the conservative website Breitbart and showed that Miller regularly promoted French media organizations like Infowars, for instance, in white nationalists' groups like V-Dare. Tuesday, the Supreme Court also heard another very important case, the case of Sergio Hernandez Huereca, a teenager shot by U.S. Border Patrol officer in 2010. The 15-year-old died on the side in the Mexican territory. Even though nine years have passed, his family is still seeking justice before the highest court in the land. The question before the court is whether a foreign family is entitled to sue for damages in U.S. courts for their son's killing. Ilya Calderón has a story. I came running from my house without shoes, and four blocks away someone picked me up and brought me here, and my son was already dead. Guadalupe Guereca has a hard time talking about her son, Sergio. This video shows the moment when a United States Border Patrol agent, Jesus Mesa Jr., shot 15-year-old Sergio Hernandez Guereca in the head. In the video, I saw when he was coming down and hit over here, and then he was killed over there. The incident happened on June 7, 2010, at the border between El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. There are other ways. He could have been arrested or detained. I don't think Sergio was stronger than the agent because the agent was trained to kill and Sergio wasn't. The Border Patrol agent claimed that a group of young people on the Mexican side, including Sergio, threw stones at him while he was trying to arrest someone who had crossed the border. Immediately, the agent shot Sergio, who was unarmed. It's not lies. They accused him of things that weren't real. This officer didn't have the right to kill him. He knows very well that Sergio didn't throw stones at him because there were no stones. 
Sergio's family filed a lawsuit in a U.S. federal court against Officer Jesus Mesa Jr. for unjustified use of lethal force. Nine years have passed since then, and now the case has reached the Supreme Court, where the justices will decide whether Sergio's family has any right to legal remedy in the United States. Meanwhile, the family is holding on to hope. What do you ask of the U.S. justice system? What I've always asked for, that the case gets resolved and that the person receives his punishment according to the law. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments for and against the DACA program, the final step in a two-year fight by dreamers trying to stop President Trump from ending the program. The Supreme Court's DACA decision will have a direct impact on hundreds of thousands of people, but the economic impact of the decision will be felt in communities across the country. Fabiola Galindo spent some time in one small Georgia city to find out how. It's one of the small towns in the U.S. that will suffer greatly economically if DACA ended. Dalton, in the northwest of Georgia, 33,000 people live here. Of them, 4,000 have DACA. That's a 15% chunk of the population. 4,000 people who suddenly won't be able to go to work or go to study. That can cause a negative impact in our city that right now is struggling to find workers for the factories, says this dreamer and activist. More than 150 carpet factories operate here, giving the city its nickname, the world's carpet capital, because more than 80% of the product is manufactured here. This city has lost many jobs in the past, during the recession. That's why ending DACA is not welcomed by Democrats or Republicans. They started off really, really small. And they this did. Republican legislator represents the area that is 50% Hispanic. He supports DREAMers. You either learn to embrace that diversity or what happens, you don't have enough employees to work. So, you, you know, our community has decided to embrace the diversity and uh, it's, it's, it's been an amazing, it's an amazing process over the last 10 years. Here at the La Esperanza Bakery, located in his district, almost half of the 16 employees are able to work because of DACA. The government is always requiring that we submit a social security number and prove that they are residents, and without it, we can't employ them. A dilemma for this restaurant owner, who fears losing everything if their workers' DACA expires. Unfortunately, the government wants the documents, and to avoid having problems, we have to ask for it, otherwise we can get shut down. For now, they will continue following the Supreme Court DACA case while looking for a legislative solution that allows them to continue contributing to the economy of their communities. In Dalton, Georgia, Fabiola Galindo, U News. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on Tuesday told BBC Radio that, quote, many, many, many people were pressuring her to consider a 2020 presidential bid, but she held that it is absolutely not in her plans. CNN previously reported that Clinton, the 2016 Democratic nominee, has been taking calls from other members of her party asking her to enter the race to defeat President Trump, but that it was unlikely she would do so. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is leading the 2020 Democratic field and the first in the nation caucus state, according to a new survey. A Monmouth University poll published Tuesday shows the South Bend, Indiana mayor is the first choice of 22% of likely Democratic caucus goers. 
Former Vice President Joe Biden ranks in second place with 19 percent support, followed by closely Senator Elizabeth Warren with an 18 percent and Senator Bernie Sanders with 13 percent. And on the other side of the aisle, Mark Sanford, the former South Carolina governor and congressman who two months ago launched a long-shot primary challenge to President Donald Trump, suspended his candidacy Tuesday. He made the announcement during a press conference at a New Hampshire state house. So let's listen. What I have seen and observed and have been sort of really mulling on this for the last two weeks or so, is that all of the oxygen is leaving the room in terms of meaningful debate, whether Republican or Democrat, but particularly on the Republican side, on what comes next in our country on a whole host of issues. Sanford was one of three Republicans running to unseat Trump. Former Illinois Representative Joe Walsh and former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld remain in the race. And on the heels of a series of anti-Semitic incidents in New York, a community and also community leaders in Brooklyn are taking action, hoping they can curb the rise of hate crimes in the area. Blanca Rosa Vilches has all of those details. It was more than 200 reported anti-Semitic incidents. It's a problem that is getting worse each year. More than half of the reported hate crimes in New York City are against Jewish people, and most of them took place in Brooklyn. We have one of the largest Jewish populations outside of Israel. We consider ourselves to be the Tel Aviv of America. That's why the number of hate crimes incidents is alarming. This year to date, there have been 111 confirmed incidents in Brooklyn alone. And another reported six just over the past week and a half. I mean, this is deeply alarming. Just the fact that they walk on the streets makes them vulnerable, according to the ADL spokesperson. Jews wear hats and kippahs. And so the external uh, representations of faith makes them a target, and they're easier to spot. The ADL and the Brooklyn authorities have doubled the money they are investing in Brooklyn schools. You can teach acceptance. Tolerance is not the right word. We also have to accept each other, not to tolerate each other. And I think if hate can be learned, hate can be unlearned. And I think that's the most important lesson we all need to learn. With this expanded program, they will be able to help more than 10,000 students in the borough, and hopefully they will make Brooklyn no place for hate. In New York, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. Now taking a look around the world, Spanish police say they have been unable to locate a Venezuelan former spymaster wanted by the United States for extradition and charges of drug trafficking. Police say that its officers have been unable to find Major General Hugo Carvajal. Media reported on Friday that a Spanish court has reversed an earlier ruling that threw out the U.S. arrest warrant and order authorities to proceed with the extradition request. In Peru, at least 19 people died when a buzz went down in a ravine in a mountainous part of the country on Tuesday morning. The accident near the town of Otosuco sent the bus tumbling down some 980 feet and reportedly left at least 23 other passengers injured. The accident occurred on a treacherous mountain road with winding roads. Driver's error and the state of the vehicle are thought to be blamed for the tragedy. 
Lethal traffic accidents are common in Peruvian roads, claiming thousands of lives in recent years. President Sebastián Piñera called for a new constitution in Chile on Tuesday as violent protests against the government continued on streets of Santiago. A new round of rallies and strikes over inequality and social injustices now beginning after almost a month of unrest in Chile. The demonstrations have sometimes devolved into arson, riots and looting, leaving at least 20 dead and creating billions of dollars of damage to public infrastructure and private businesses. Santiago's public transport system has been severely impacted. Meanwhile, in neighboring Bolivia, Senator Janine Añez was sworn in as interim president on Tuesday as the country scrambles to restore order. That chaos emerging after weeks of protests finally brought down former Bolivian president Evo Morales, the last of a wave of Latin American leftists leaders who dominated the region's politics at the start of this century. Añez said her role as president is only transitionary until transparent elections are held. Morales' resignation came after the Organization of American States declared there were very serious irregularities during the October 20th vote, prompting political allies to quit and the army to urge him to step down. And for more on Bolivia, let's go to Eduardo Gamarra. He's a political science professor at the Florida University. Thank you for joining us via phone. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Professor Evo Morales resigned on Sunday, saying he was forced out by a coup organized by his opponents. Other leftist lawmakers, like, for instance, Nicolás Maduro of Venezuela, said the same thing. And even political figures in the United States, like, for instance, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, took to Twitter to call it a coup as well. So, what's your take on that? Was Evo's resignation due to a popular uprising or as a result of a coup? Listen, I think uh, what's important to understand about Bolivia, and uh, I'm going to quote uh, Secretary General of the OAS in the speech yesterday. He said that there was a coup in Bolivia, but that the coup took place on October 20th. And the coup was, in fact, led, it was a self-coup led by Evo Morales, who conducted fraudulent elections uh, to try to remain um, illegally for a fourth term in office. So I think, you know, that's an important point to, to start out with. The rest is sort of, you know, these accusations of a coup largely stem from the fact that for the last 20 days, there's been an extensive mobilization trying to get Evo Morales to recognize, first and foremost, that there was a, that there was a the OAS, uh, issued a report on Sunday evening, Sunday morning, as a matter of fact, confirming the extent of the fraud. So the military, in essence, and I think this is the first in Latin America, the military, in fact, decided not to take sides in the confrontation and play a constitutional role. So Evo's resignation came in the context of this, far from a coup, more, uh, I would say, uh, the fact that he didn't want to be prosecuted in Bolivia for, for basically violating the law. So, uh, so I think, you know, a lot of what's going on right now internationally and predictably, his support is coming from Cuba, it's coming from uh, uh, López Obrador, 
and certainly coming from Nicolás Maduro, the newly elected president of Argentina, sort of to recompose that uh, uh, that Latin American left that is really in, in trouble throughout the region. So as we were looking at the images, we know that Evo Morales arrived yesterday to Mexico. Of course, you know, seeking that political asylum that was offered to him by Marcelo Ebrard, the secretary there in Mexico. So, you know, explain to us how this looks optically for Mexico and also for Bolivia, having Evo Morales in that country. Well, first, let's look at Mexico. Uh, the uh, the opposition in Mexico has in fact raised uh, serious questions about uh, about the presence of Evo Morales because uh, when they read the text of what happened in Bolivia, uh, they understand two things: one that Evo violated the role, he tried to rig elections, and then while talking about democracy and and even victimizing himself. Uh, he is actually promoting violence in Bolivia. Much of what's left behind in Bolivia is reacting to his calls, you know, for vandalism and even the declaration of war by the Six Coca Growers Federation, which Evo Morales still heads as the secretary general of that of that organization. So so I think it's you know it's it's interesting that the Mexicans are kind of stuck. They've accepted a, a president who, who left in a rather ignominious way from Bolivia and, uh, and don't really know what to do with him. Uh, the perspective in Bolivia, however, is, is, uh, is quite different. Um, and I think uh, Evo's uh, public image uh, has dropped considerably. And I think it's going to be very difficult for him and even his party to be competitive in any future elections that might be held there. So, Professor Morales ruled Bolivia for almost 14 years, and many experts say that his rule was marked by an era of prosperity and stability, but that his downfall was his reluctance to give up power. So, what will be Morales' biggest legacy from your perspective? Look, uh, um, I don't think all good things go together, right? nor all bad things go together. So, so there's a lot to be... Uh, let's say, uh, remembered from Evo's, from Evo's period. The most important, I guess, is the fact that, uh, that Bolivia became a country that uh, became more racially tolerant. And I think that that's, a, that's an enormous uh, conquest. Having said that, however, over the course of the last 13 years, Evo constructed from the very beginning a single-party state with enormous cult of personality, with an extraordinary uh, pattern of corruption. And then to end all of that, and I think he, you know, had he basically decided uh, three years ago that this was when he was elected uh, uh, for his third term, had he decided, look, I've done my work, I've served Bolivia, I'm going to go home and, and I'm going to serve from somewhere else, uh, his legacy would have been really quite, quite significant. But unfortunately, I think now, his legacy is going to be tainted by the fraud, by the corruption, and by the enormous instigation of violence that he's currently, you know, propagating while he gives this, this speech, this victimized speech in Mexico. Professor, thank you so much for this insight. We ran out of time, but we appreciate your presence and your insights as well. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the story from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. A cigarettes could be worse for your heart than regular cigarettes. The American Heart Association is presenting two new studies at its upcoming scientific sessions meeting. The key findings are that vaping has an unhealthy impact on heart disease factors, including glucose and cholesterol levels. Researchers also say using cigarettes appear to, the, to decrease blood flow to the heart, more so than tobacco cigarettes. According to new findings, about 34 million Americans know someone who died after being unable to pay for a medical treatment. It shows that more than 13% of Americans have a friend or a family member, perhaps, who died in the past five years after not receiving a treatment because of high costs. The survey also found that 22.9% of U.S. adults said they had been many times in the past year where their household was unable to pay for drugs that they were prescribed. Women and low-income Americans are more likely to fall into that category. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.